Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And in this episode, I wanted to return to a popular subject on this channel. And what I mean by that is the subject of the early roads and taverns of Southwest Michigan. Some of my earlier episodes that I have done on the subject of territorial roads and plank roads were very well received and perhaps some of my most listened to episodes historically on this podcast. And recently I came across another reference that adds even more clarity to the understanding of the early pioneer roads and territorial roads and the whole history of their establishment going across southwest Michigan, as well as a discussion about some of the early taverns around southwest Michigan. So the principal reference that I will be using today is a book that was written by a man named Charles Adam Weissert, and it is called An Account of Southwest Michigan and St. Joseph County. And he lived between 1878 and 1947. My assumption is this book was published somewhere in the late 1920s. There is also another article I'll be referring to today that was published in 1910 in the Battle Creek Inquirer that discusses a lot of the early taverns and hotels. So this may be a little bit of a longer episode, but it is a fascinating topic. So come along and join me. So Charles Adam Weissert begins by discussing in a chapter entitled Early Roads and Taverns, and he describes the first great road authorized built in Michigan was the military highway between Detroit and Chicago, passing through the southern tier of counties. This road was surveyed along the old Sauk Trail before 1825. The Sauk Trail comes from the name of a Native American tribe that once existed that possibly had contact with the French, but the name stuck with a lot of the remaining Native Americans referring to the old Sauk people that were in the area before them. So this old trail that ran all the way from Detroit to Chicago already existed and it was called the Old Sock Trail. And as this road was intended for possible movement of troops and transportation of supplies, it was laid out 100 feet wide. So the plan for this road was to follow this old trail and make it 100 feet wide all the way to Chicago. So carefully had the Native Americans selected this route when they planned the Old Sock Trail that few changes were necessary. When actual construction was ordered at the cost of $25,000, funds were scarce and the builders did little else than cut the trees on each side of the trail and remove shrubbery. Here and there, they laid corduroy across swamps. Corduroy were corduroy roads. This is where they laid logs side by side over marshy areas and swamps so that you could take a wagon or ride a horse over it. And during that time, it was a lot of oxen pulling carts. And then he goes on to say that most of the improvements were made by the immigrants with their wagons, often sinking to the wheel hubs in the mud. 
made travel impossible unless the use of the axe and shovel were brought into action. So the travelers heading west would get stuck in the mud and they ended up doing the road maintenance that needed to be done if they wanted to continue. He goes on to say that many were the wrecks of vehicles that lined the old highway into the new country, and many were the tales of hardships that were carried back to eastern cities. The Chicago Trail, with the exception of a short section which was straightened in Washtenaw County, today follows the course of the Native American Highway over which, for hundreds of years, traveled the indigenous people on missions of peace and war. In 1833, the government actually began to improve this road, but progress was slow, and the first workers did not arrive in St. Joseph County until 1834. With the resumption of stage lines shortly after the Black Hawk scare was over, public demand made improvements necessary, and in a short time, there was an improved road to Chicago. The Black Hawk scare was referencing the Black Hawk War, which happened right around 1830 to 1835, where there was an uprising of a Native American chief named Black Hawk, and he was essentially going on the warpath in the Kalamazoo and um, I think Berrien County area. But let's continue. The highway divided at Ypsilanti, the northern section running through Ann Arbor, Jackson, Marshall and Battle Creek, the other bore to the southwest, passing through Hillsdale County, thence westward through Coldwater, Sturgis, White Pigeon, and Bertrand to the lakeshore. Both of these trans-state highways were called territorial roads. And there, that, that final description adds a lot of clarity for me, because you'll see references to territorial roads when you look at all these old references, and sometimes they are referring to the one that went south through Coldwater Sturges across all the way to White Pigeon and so forth. And then other times they're talking about the one that was more northerly that went through Battle Creek on through Kalamazoo and so forth. So it was a little confusing in, in this references. And this is the first time that I've actually had clarity for myself about the fact that the road actually was all considered the territorial road or territorial roads, but they forked just east of Ann Arbor. And another point here, he says, between Detroit and Chicago, the principal settlement was White Pigeon in St. Joseph County. This town, which grew rapidly, was named after the Potawatomi chief, Wabenmi, who gave up his life to warn the community of a plot to murder them. The first record of that settlement there in White Pigeon was in 1827, but tradition has it that pioneers were there in that area earlier than that. And White Pigeon was the principal stop between Detroit and Chicago. It was the oldest settlement on the territorial road, on that southern territorial road. And it was for that reason that White Pigeon became the territorial land office, because after the surveyors came back from setting up the road and they'd gone all the way to Chicago and back, they opened up the land available to the pioneers and the land office in Monroe was flooded with settlers that wanted to head west. And so they decided to move the land office 
out to White Pigeon, which is something I've covered in another podcast episode. So here he begins to discuss some of the other roads that were made. He said more roads were needed with the increase of immigration. The demands for more roads became insistent and construction of highways was immediately authorized, though actual building was slow and expensive. In 1829, an act was passed by the territorial legislature authorizing construction of a road from Plymouth in Wayne County through Ann Arbor to Grand River, where the St. Joseph Trail crossed the same fence through Kogowak, which was actually Gogwak, and the Grand Prairies um, to the mouth of the St. Joseph River. Janiel Enos of Grand Prairie was appointed one of the commissioners. The act was passed on June 18, 1832 to provide for a territorial road from the mouth of Battle Creek to the mouth of the Kalamazoo River across Gull Prairie and thence following the river to its mouth. The same year, on June 22nd, an act was passed authorizing construction of a territorial road from White Pigeon via Prairie Ronde and Kalamazoo all the way to Grand Rapids. So we have this northerly route of a territorial road being authorized in June of 1832. The commissioners appointed to lay out this road were John S. Berry, who later on went on to become a governor of the state of Michigan, and Isaac Hurd and E.B. Sherman. And then in 1833, the territorial legislature established a road beginning at the Middle Village, the Native American settlement at the Old French Blockhouse on Scales Prairie, which was two miles west of the present village of Middleville in Berry County, and running through the Gun River Plain into Allegan County, uh, the territorial road near there forks off to Pawpaw. So we have these additional roads being made in Berry County, in Allegan County, and going on over into Van Buren County. In 1833, construction was authorized for another highway leading from Marshall to the Rapids of the Grand, which obviously is Grand Rapids, and following Michigan being admitted as a state, settlement rapidly increased and numerous roads were laid out and constructed. In 1837, a state road was established between Kalamazoo and the county seat of Barry County, which would be Hastings. At the same time, there was authorized a state road to run for Marshall via Verona, which is now a portion of Battle Creek, and Gun Plains to Allegan. And yet another road was established leading from Bellevue up to Hastings. And then in 1838, a state road was established to run between Battle Creek by way of Hutchinson's Mills to Hastings. And this ultimately became a plank road. And then in February of 1838, a state road between Kalamazoo and Niles was authorized with Twin Lakes also being intercepted along that route. Another road was established from Battle Creek to Grand Rapids by way of the Gull Prairie, and this was reported in the Kalamazoo Telegraph. And yet another road was established from Kalamazoo to Hastings, and another road was established between Galesburg and Hastings around the same time. In 1840, a state road was established between Vermontville and Grand Rapids by way of Barry County, and the commissioners were William Stoddard of Charlotte and Levi Wheaton of Chester and Waite Cherie of Eaton County. And then in 1841, they wanted to refine this road so they would have a main state road from 
Eaton County, through Vermontville, all the way to Hastings and on to Grand Rapids. And so this was further established with a new road commission to widen and complete that road. So with the roads being established and starting to be established over these years, the first stagecoach line was established in 1831. And it was with the opening of roads these stage lines were put into effect, and these vehicles began to carry passengers as far as White Pigeon in 1831 under the management of a man by the name of Achelle Savory, who was a tavern keeper in White Pigeon. And then in 1833, a man named Sargent carried passengers from Kalamazoo and Grand Rapids, and then Lucius Barnes started a a line between Marshall and Bronson, which was Kalamazoo, by way of the Gulf Prairie. Now, I believe he has an incorrect name there. I believe Lucius Barnes may not be the correct name because I think it was Nathaniel Barney that actually established that line. But it could have been that Lucius Barnes was the man that had it before Nathaniel Barney. Several early stage lines in the region were operated from Detroit west into the region by a company named Tillotson, Brown, and Davis, General Bissell, Humphrey, and Patterson, and Ward. Stages between Three Rivers and Grand Rapids were run at one time by a firm by the name of Patterson and Wood. And some of these vehicles were the large Concorde-type stagecoaches drawn by four horses, and others were the thoroughbrace type, which were swung by from running gear and leather instead of being held in place by springs. And the drivers were skilled with the whip, and they took pride in delivering on time their heavily laden outfits. At the taverns were meals which were ready to be served, and the horses were ready to be changed. So the stagecoach lines ran two different types of stagecoaches. There was the Concord type, which was drawn by four horses, and this had springs and was a little bit more robust. And then there was the uh, thorough brace type, which was the running gear was leather straps and held in place by springs. And so there was these different um, needs for stops to be established, and thus you have the creation of all these taverns that became stagecoach stops along the way. So I want to go into some of the history of some of the early taverns because those taverns also served as post offices and mail routes as these infrastructure starts to be built in this early period of the settlement of southwest Michigan. It's quite interesting. But before we move on, I want to make a note of something that he points out here. He says the Battle Creek Hastings stage line became a important achievement for the settlement of Hastings. Because in later years, when the railroads came through, the settlement of Hastings was not in the travel lines of the railroad early on. Uh, the railroad ran through Battle Creek to Kalamazoo and then went up to Grand Rapids, and Hastings was left on its own, still surviving on its supply line from the stagecoach lines and the, and the territorial roads that had been established. So it's kind of an interesting history along that line. One of the early taverns up in Barry County was at the Barlow House, and it was the first stage tavern, and it became the first hostelry on the Thornapple Riverbank. And people there would await the arrival of the stage either coming from Grand Rapids or coming from Battle Creek. 
depending on which direction they were running. And part of the road between Battle Creek and Hastings were plank roads, and part of them were the regular unpaved roads. And they ran the Concord type of stagecoach, which carried passengers inside and also on top. And these were equipped with four horses, which made pretty fast time over the smoother sections of the road, uh, especially the planked areas. And he makes an interesting note about the stage approaching the tavern up in Hastings. When the stage approached the taverns, it was customary for the driver to blow a long blast from a horn, and the sound reverberated for miles through the heavily timbered hills. Now, you would think this is done to alert the people at the tavern that they were coming. It probably served that purpose, but what he says here is this was done to impress the passengers, many of whom were tender feet from the east who rode in fear that the stage would be at any time attacked by Indians. And they were afraid of the red men who were frequently seen peering through the bushes as the stage went past. So they had these wrong ideas that they were going to be attacked by uh, the Native American people. And so they played this up as something to uh, impress the passengers. As time went on, the first stage stop was Bristol's Tavern, which was 15 miles south of Hastings after they left Battle Creek. And this house was built by William P. Bristol in 1852, and it was used as an inn until around 1862 or so forth. And then the Robinson House sprang into prominence and was used until the extension of the river, the Grand River Valley Division of the Michigan Central Railroad to Grand Rapids, which put all of the stagecoach lines out of business at that point. Now, there's another interesting story here. Five miles southeast of Hastings is a spring located at the foot of an immense hill known as Macomber's Hill, where drivers of the stagecoach always stopped to water their horses. It was an excellent place for a tavern, and two rival hotels were built by Alan Green, a well-known pioneer character, and a man named Luke's. A bottle of whiskey was usually found in the long grass near the spring. The passenger poured out a drink and left the money near the bottle. To this day, the place is known as Whiskey Run. That's an interesting little anecdote. Whenever the stage stopped at this place, the passengers turned out and the drinks were passed around. Once the taverns were built, there were many incidents at these taverns. Uh, they were places where people would held dances, and they had high revelry, and these were often indulged in by the residents of Hastings as well. And counterfeit money, which flowed abundantly in these new settlements, was also passed at the taverns along the line. So this was also another hidden problem that occurred in the pioneer settlement days. So now I'm going to talk about some of the other taverns that were along the territorial road that I have found references on. And I'm going to sidestep here over to the Battle Creek Inquirer article of 1910. It was published in March of that year. It describes that Samuel Convis built a log house that became one of the early stops for the stagecoach. And a lot of these early stagecoach stops, particularly as you're around 1831 to 1835, were often log cabins that were built by settlers that offered a room or a bed for people that were traveling along the route. Nathaniel Barney and his family arrived in Battle Creek on March 9th, 
1833, and he built a log cabin on West Main Street, and he eventually uh, established that as a tavern, and in reality was the first hotel in the city. And Mr. Barney later on expanded that house and moved it a few different times over the years, and it became larger and larger. The old remaining Barney's Tavern still exists out on Michigan Avenue. It's now a multifamily house out there near the corner of Barney Road and Michigan Avenue in that area out there in Bedford. And there's lots of stories about Barney's Tavern. There is one from John Meacham, who was a well-known surveyor in the area of that time, and he mentions that he saw a man by the name of William Hill at Barney's Tavern with his rifle shoot at wild deer standing on the opposite bank of the Kalamazoo River from Barney's Tavern. It was so densely forested out there and it was just wild country out there it's hard to imagine that today with all the houses and uh, roads and, and businesses out that way but that's what it was at the time and when barney had established his tavern out where the last building of it was it became a popular place for dances and merrymaking of young people in those days and they would uh bring out an orchestra. There was a Halliday Brothers Orchestra that furnished music for those dances out there at Barney's Tavern. And of course, it was a stagecoach stop and they would change the horses across the street and have people stay out there. And then in later years, inner urban cars ran out to Bedford out that way and went right by Barney's Tavern. But Battle Creek's most famous hotel was the old Battle Creek House, which was located on the north side of West Main Street on the corner of North Jefferson. And Main Street today is Michigan Avenue, and Jefferson is Capitol Avenue Southwest. And today it's all office buildings and stuff, but the old Battle Creek House used to stand on that corner. And there's a historic plaque there, or there used to be. I've heard that they took it down recently. Uh, it used to be on the building there at uh, 2 West Michigan. And this Battle Creek House had a long veranda that wrapped around the building, and it was a gathering place for men to come in from the fields for the day, and they'd sit out on the veranda, and they'd have something to drink. There was a lot of oyster suppers there, and a lot of dances, and a lot of different types of uh, entertainment of the time period, including these magic lantern shows, which were essentially like a light show through a lantern, and they'd have these... Uh, cut out pictures and things that the light would shine through. It was kind of like a, a rudimentary slideshow, and it was a form of entertainment that was done during that time period. And that hotel lasted until it was finally burned down in 1866. Another pioneer hotel was Hanner's Tavern, and it was afterwards called the Great Western Hotel on Main Street in Battle Creek. Another in Battle Creek that was built somewhere in the late 1830s was the American House. And this was something that was established by Isaac Merritt and run by a tavern keeper that ran his own tavern out on an area called the Gulf, which was more out just beyond the post factory area back in there, uh, if you're familiar with the Battle Creek area. And his name was John Henry, and he ran the old log tavern that was called the Gulf out at that time. But the American House in Battle Creek was roughly across from the old post office in Battle Creek today, and that lasted until about 1856. It was uh, partially destroyed by a fire on election night of that year. Now, there's an interesting account of a man who was traveling 
on the stagecoach line, leaving the Battle Creek House in, in 1843 on the stage line. And he was going over the territorial road towards Kalamazoo, and he indicates that he paid $1 for this ride. And he fortunately left this record of his experience with the public inns. He wrote, Southwesterly across the Gogwak Prairie over to the west border was Mike Furlong's tavern. Mike knew how to catch the people. His sign read, the sign is right, M. Furlong. Four miles west, just over into Charleston, was the once famous tavern known as The Cottage. The old hostelry was a popular resort for parties from Kalamazoo and Battle Creek. Here they came on drives to enjoy themselves, to dance, to play cards, and to have a good festive time. Two miles west of Cook's Corners was the stage exchange kept by Oro Bush. Here, the stage stopped to change horses and for meals. Three miles further on west was the Prairie House at Galesburg, built in 1835. Had the register of this old house been kept, what a history it would have revealed. Two and one-half miles west of Galesburg was the White Cottage. Johnny Moore was the proprietor. And beyond Tolan's Prairie, the wheels on one side of our stage got stuck in the soft earth thrown up by the men grading the Michigan Central Track, and we nearly tipped over. A rail was secured, and the coach pried up, and the horse hauled it up on a terra firma. At Kalamazoo, where the river house was kept by Mr. Burchard, and there was another place called the American House by Henry Bower over in Kalamazoo, and also the Kalamazoo House by Israel Kellogg, and the Exchange by Johnson Patrick. The Prairie House at Galesburg was still standing as of the time of this writing in 1910. And it was known as the Bennett at that time. And this inn and the Barney's Tavern were the only two pioneer erected in this section. Uh, Isaac Merritt's Tavern still was in existence as well. So that route went down more along Territorial Road, headed towards Kalamazoo. There was the other route that went out towards Bedford, and you went on to Barney's Tavern. And after leaving Barney's Tavern, the road to Gull Corners was Richland, and that was Gilbert's Run, which was run by Josiah Gilbert. And just west of Wabaskin Creek, near the present residence of a man by the name of Ben Anderson, according to that article here in 1910. And Gilbert's was a favorite resort for Battle Creek young people as well, and they would go on up there to entertain themselves. On the stage route to Hastings, the first stopping place was Bedford. There was no hotel in this place until 1850, when one was built by Thomas Jefferson Peabody. And that present hotel at that time in 1910 was built in 1862, by Avery and Higley. So there apparently was a hotel out there in 1910 when this article was written. Four miles west of Bedford in Barry County was Culver's Tavern, and this was run by Carver Robinson. Over in Verona, just northeast of Battle Creek, there was a hotel that was built there, and it was built in 1842, and it burned down on March 21st, 1860. And he described it as the Tufts, from Battle Creek used to attend dances at that hotel for the purpose of cleaning out the Veronites. 
And at that time, Verona had some of the best fighting men in Calhoun County, and they always came out victorious whenever a fight broke out in the dance hall. And several fights were pulled off at that old tavern. Another well-known hotel was the Tamarack House at Assyria Center. And this became well-known also for dances followed by fights during those days. But by far the most well-known and famous tavern in Michigan at that time was the all-time Yankee Springs Tavern. And it was in Yankee Springs in Barry County. And this was run by William Yankee Lewis. And it was on the line that was traveled between Battle Creek and Grand Rapids and Kalamazoo and Grand Rapids. And so it was on this cross path of both of these stagecoach lines as people traveled in those routes to and from uh, Grand Rapids, either to Kalamazoo over to Battle Creek. And Yankee Lewis was the prince of innkeepers and entertained at this tavern some of the most noted men of Michigan during that time. He built his tavern in 1836, and at that time, it was located on 1,000 acres of land, and it became the half-mile house to all of the country around it. Lewis was prominent in politics, being elected to the state House of Representatives in the legislature from Barrie and also Allegan counties in 1836. And that was the last year that the state capital was located in Detroit. So he was quite a well-known character and had perhaps the most well-known tavern of all taverns in southwest Michigan there at Yankee Springs. Perhaps the only one that might challenge it in its fame was the tavern that was run by Eschel Savory, over in White Pigeon. And this was called the Old Diggins Tavern. It was a famous hotel in its day because it was a frequented travel path between Detroit and Chicago. So it was perhaps an earlier fame than the Yankee Springs Tavern became. But I believe the Yankee Springs Tavern, because of its tavern keeper, made it even more popular than the Old Diggins ever was. But the Old Diggins was probably the earliest and first well-known tavern along the stagecoach lines. And of course, when the stagecoach line was established all the way from White Pigeons to Grand Rapids, it was also a frequent stop at that end of the stage line. Probably why the old Diggins lost some of its fame in later years is because Savory closed the old Diggins tavern and left for Texas shortly after the stagecoach line had been established. And he was one of the pioneers that got that stagecoach line established between uh, White Pigeon and Grand Rapids. But I found another description of the Yankee Springs Tavern. It says that throughout western Michigan's territory, there was no personage more widely known during the stagecoach days than William or Yankee Lewis, genial landlord of the Mansion House, a tavern nine stories all on the ground in the western part of Barrie County. Travelers going out of Michigan sang the praises of hospitality extended by Yankee Bill and his estimable wife. Those who ate at his table longed to go back, and those en route into the new country looked forward with delightful anticipation to the feasts they were to find spread on the tables and the comfortable beds in which the hardships of the trip were to be forgotten. So that is how William Lewis and his wife, Mary Goodwin, who established the Yankee Tavern up there, or the Old Mansion House Tavern, 
And it was described as nine stories all on the ground. So that must have been nine buildings connected. So that was a very large building in its time. But um, quite an amazing um, legacy. I could probably devote an entire episode just to that couple and the Yankee Springs Tavern, as well as the history of the old Diggins Tavern, because those two were perhaps the most well-known taverns in all of Southwest Michigan history. Barney's Tavern has its own legacy, and there's quite a bit of history with that one as well, as well as the Battle Creek House. If you were to put all four of those stories together, you'd probably have a uh, an impressive book on old taverns in Southwest Michigan, which, hey, that may be a title of an upcoming book of mine. Who knows? There are certainly a lot of fun stories that I have come across on all four of those taverns in my research over the years. And as I mentioned before, these taverns existed in the era of the stagecoach. Um, A lot of them disappeared after the introduction of the railroad. They were replaced by more modern hotels and larger structures, brick buildings and things like that. And during the stagecoach years, the taverns along the routes of all of these places also became post offices and they handled and took care of the mail for the people in the community. So if you wanted to get mail, you went into one of these taverns that was located in your area, and that's how you got your letters. Or if you wanted to send a letter, you sent it from one of these taverns because they were connected with the stage lines that were running up to Grand Rapids and all the way to Chicago and over into Detroit at the three farthest ends, at least here in southwest Michigan, across lower Michigan to Detroit. So that is um, a very interesting history of the development of those roads and the development of the the different taverns that became established along the lines. And it's interesting that some of them were only three or four miles apart because that was the length of, of distance that they could run the horses oftentimes. Sometimes they would not run, they would change the horses every seven or eight miles, and they would rest them at every three to four mile intervals along the way. So oftentimes the drivers themselves went longer distances. Some of those drivers went the full length of the journey, you know, and they would change the horses two or three times depending on their route for the day. So it's kind of an interesting lost history of Southwest Michigan and We look to the museums to preserve a lot of this history of the old stagecoach lines. So there are museums all over southwest Michigan. I am sure that some of them probably have some artifacts with the old stagecoaches and things like that. And there's probably some over at the um, Gilmore Car Museum, for example, and other places around uh, southwest Michigan that probably have some of those vehicles that are still being preserved. But that's going to do it for today's journey through history. Um, This was a kind of a longer episode, but it is a Sunday and I wanted to share this story with you guys. I haven't had any guests on this year yet. I have been trying to schedule guests, but I've been very busy planning my book tour. And some of the guests I've had that were working on trying to schedule with me have been traveling or have had trouble with the weather conditions we've experienced here in January, and we've had to cancel and postpone. So hopefully I'll start having some guests showing up on the Sunday episodes starting in February. At least that's my goal. And as always, if you would like to reach out to me, you can find me at michaeldelaware.com. 
I'm always happy to hear from my listeners. If you go on the website today, you'll see it's been revised a lot. Probably if you haven't been there in a while, um, you can pre-order my upcoming book that is due out on March 11th. That is Victorian Southwest Michigan True Crime. And if you pre-order a copy through my website, I will send you a signed copy when I place my order for the books, which will be in early March. And you might just get the book before it's released out on Amazon to other people. It depends on when they send me my shipment. And if you're active out there on social media, look for me on Michael Delaware Author on Facebook and go ahead and follow me on that page. I am posting a lot of my events there and sharing them on social media across Facebook and also Instagram. You can find me on Instagram at Michigan History Guy. I am relatively new to that Instagram page, so I've been uh, mainly posting a lot of the upcoming events that I have on there, as well as information about pre-ordering my new book. But I hope to have a lot more interesting content on my Instagram as time goes on, as I get more familiar with the platform. But as it is with all social media out there, it's whatever time that you can make for it. And if you don't, then it is what it is. And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past, thank you for listening. (laughs) 